The University of New England is embarking on a bold new mission to transform the university's decommissioned boiler house into a purpose-built discovery space. Here on Curiosity Built the Boiler House, we'll follow the transformation of this 1950s industrial building into a regional science-themed play space. Along the way, we'll also chat with leading experts in education, play space design, and all things STEAM about what makes for an incredible discovery space experience. I'm Dr. James O'Hanlon, and for this episode, I sat down with Ben Newsom, the founder and CEO of Physics Education. I actually had this thing on our site. He's like, guys, you know the problem with science shows? I do a trick, and now I do a trick, and now I do another trick, and everyone says bye, and then you go home, and whoever looks after you, they ask you, what did you learn? And they go, nothing. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a thing. I'm not so interested in the, the thing that goes bang. Any of these experiments need to create dialogue. If there's no dialogue, they just might as well just be watching Netflix. So I, I want them to be thinking more. And as soon as the hands go up or as soon as I'm getting people bouncing off each other's questions, we, I know that the audience is listening. Physics Education is an award-winning company that creates science shows and experiences for, well, pretty much any audience they can reach. We're science outreach people. Our job is to go out to schools, libraries, museums, zoos, whoever wants us to do some sciencey stuff for all sorts of audiences. Uh, predominantly, we work a lot with schools, but we do work with all sorts of places, even retirement homes. There are four main things, I suppose, we could say we do. So, yeah, there's a school delivery from um, generally from kinder to year 10, uh, but we also deal with preschools as well. Uh, there's holiday programs, which are for libraries, vacation care services. Often museums will actually ask us to come in and do some bits and pieces uh, that will fit what they're doing as well. Uh, we do have been doing video conferencing for about 10 years. So we've done a lot of distance uh, delivery, out, uh, not just into regional remote areas of Australia, but also globally. And, the, yeah, there's the kids' parties. <laughs> the kids' parties we've done... Gosh, thousands of them uh, over the years. And they're, they're a lot of fun. They let us uh, honestly just let our hair down. And also a really good avenue for our, um, our people when they first start with physics. Uh, often they'll go and do parties just to get their head around how to present in a very informal environment. <laughs> because if they can listen to you at a 10-year-old party, they probably will listen to you in an informal environment. We started in Western Sydney, so I'm actually sitting in our, in our office in Blacktown uh, in Western Sydney. Though we do have a team in Melbourne, in Canberra, and in Brisbane. And we do a lot of outreach, so often we're kind of like the lots of cars moving around. <laughs> it's probably the, actually not so much cars, utes. It's a lot of fun, a lot, a lot, a lot of a uh, lot of kilometres done, but it's a uh, good fun in the process. Physics education now consists of a large team of science communicators spanning the country, but this company grew from much humbler beginnings. I asked Ben about what physics education looked like back when he initially started. One person with a box of stuff and a. Sh- shoddy old car that was half dead running out of a spare bedroom it's really like a classic business story i suppose it's the spare bedroom conversation but it really was before i was doing our programs into schools it really was parties on the weekends and during the weekdays at the time i was working with my late father-in-law who ran a uh, conveyor manufacturer business so i'd be welding and cutting steel i wasn't even really a qualified fitter or turner i was just a guy with a welder I'd trying to do what i could um and so i'd take phone calls away from the noise and the banging and everything else that happens in it, effectively a, a steel factory. You know, organise a kid's party, which is kind of amusing when you think about it, um, out in the car park, you'd take it down the, on a diary and then I'd go back into cutting steel and whatnot. So I did a lot of uh, kids' parties and remote touring first. The reason why is that when we're doing uh, kids' science parties, 
there weren't that many places doing it at all. Uh, and it was, it's kind of at the time something that people thought, oh, that sounds cool. We'll try that. Uh, we did a lot of remote touring. I mean, I actually did a lot of town hopping. Uh, really did out in uh, Western New South Wales. And so that ran for a couple of years. Uh, in fact, I was doing seven days a week. I would do country touring. I'd come back Friday night, uh, pack, and then I'd do four birthday parties on the weekend and repeat. <laughs> I'd do that for several, uh, for a couple of years straight for seven days a week, except for Christmas. And uh, over time, kind of realized eventually, because sort of a bit of a slow learner, uh, <laughs> realized that you can't do that forever. So I thought I'd probably bring someone on to help me out doing at least these parties. But then I discovered that when you put on someone, suddenly you fill them up and you're still doing the work too. So then the second person, it started growing from there. Before beginning his own science education company, Ben studied education and planned on becoming a high school teacher. But along the way, he started to think that he could approach science education from a different direction. So yeah, as a high school educator, it's my background. Uh, prior to that, I used to be uh, a bushland regenerator. So I actually was uh, running project teams to clean up Sydney bushland, environmental uh, areas, creeks, de- de- degraded areas, and uh, a bit of a bit of a change. But uh, the thing for me was that I really loved the idea of being able to reach bucket loads of people as much as possible. I mean, high school teachers do an amazing job, and they impact you know ten, twenty thousand kids directly, deeply for because they're the ones you know you you're, you remember your chemistry teacher, you remember your biology teacher because you were with them for a year or two. And you get to get form close personal relationships and the you, you have deep impact. I wanted to reach more people. Nowadays, we reach 350,000 kids a year, give or take. And honestly, also, too, with the just going out to schools, I just wanted to um, do stuff that sometimes we're not allowed to do as, as high school teachers, but you are as a visitor, as long as the risk assessments are done properly. A career change from science education and bushland regeneration into small business management was not an easy task, and Ben faced an uphill battle with some personal challenges thrown in as well. But in chatting to Ben, I discovered that sometimes the challenges life throws at you can be the impetus it takes to grow into bigger and better things. So when we got to about five people, and I was still presenting uh, a lot, it was manageable, but it was starting to teeter a little bit because, I mean, there comes a point when you can't do everything. You just can't. Um, and there was a particular moment where and it, was, it was almost forced upon me. Uh, the birth of our first child, um, it was a, our, our child was three months premature, which meant I had to spend a lot of time in an ICU whilst trying to present as well, whilst trying to look after my wife and young child uh, and the business as well. So it, it got nuts, out of hand. So um, I was counselled <laughs> to get to someone to help out to on the management side uh, and Justine who came on gosh over 10 years ago now uh, and we still we work very closely together still um, to this day but that was a realization that you can't just do everything but there was that inflection point whereby I had to step away from something in this case it was uh, some some of the day-to-day operations or at least the inquiries and the admin tasks that come on with any uh, operation uh, by stepping away from that I had then had room to well get my stuff together <laughs> In terms of uh, help, helping from a creativity point of view, like creating programs, but also uh, some direction for the presenters. Uh, and so we have a very clear line within the business to this day, whereby we have our admin team, we have our education team, and we have managers for both. They do they, they do meet and they, they work together, but they're also, they are two different disciplines. And so um, making sure that you create that space and time, open the up opportunity for the place to grow. If I had not done that, I don't think we would have done that well. I think we potentially would have imploded. 
Having grown the company, Ben has fostered the science communication careers of many other people around him. Given his experience working with so many different presenters and educators, I was keen to ask Ben about what he thinks makes for a great science communicator. The reality is, is that unless they can present and link and connect with people, no matter who they are, very quickly, no matter what your science content is, if you aren't making that connection, you're not going to get much learning happening at all because they honestly, they just don't care. So, I mean, we will have, when we have people come in to join the company, you know, the usual interview rounds and whatnot, and there's some stellar people that you're interviewing, you go, you know what, they're awesome, they're wickedly cool. And others who have the same qualifications, and you go, you know what, I can't imagine you in front of 200 kids. I mean, we're not looking for, you know, show ponies, but what we are looking for is people who can make connection. They've got to also honestly just love the science and love the joy of learning. Um, that's what I'm looking for. Um, I mean, letters are useful after people's names, but that's just a starting point. Gosh, over the years now, I know we've had over like 100 educators in different ways come through the company. And it's really cool because we actually run into them at different schools and whatnot, and they invite us in now to their school, which is kind of cool. Being a science communicator means being presented with the challenge of communicating complex, sometimes intangible scientific concepts to a general audience. I wanted to ask Ben where this all starts. How do you actually design an activity that can demonstrate and make accessible complex scientific concepts? The job is, is to imagine whatever that particular concept is that's been published in a journal. It's trying to visualize it. When you can visualize what it's actually doing, whether you write on a whiteboard, what does it look like? Okay, ignore the equations for a moment. What does the thing look like roughly? I mean, for I don't know, it could be why does space-time itself warp around a heavy object? So it blows your mind that it even does this. And um, so you either you try to try and create it around, you know, how you, how does this, what does this look like? And in this case, it's a very classic demonstration of a heavy object being shoved into a blanket and the blanket then sags. And then you sort of run things that sort of orbit <laughs> around this heavy object. Someone first had to create that idea. So they had to visualize the concept, not with just calculations, which are very, very important, actually help you actually work the science. But it's the visual that matters. If you can create the visual around it, you can usually explain it. How does it actually look? And then what things can I buy or make that will make that thing look like or hopefully even do the theory? I was, I was trying to grapple my head around how was I going to explain um, uh, lensing around a star. And um, I don't know, I was, I've been dealing with it for a, a week or two trying to how would I make this kind of look cool? And honestly, I was just sitting, um, well, not sitting, I was standing in my kitchen counter and I was moving a wine glass um, over our counter. Our counter actually has little um, speckled top, like, like, like white dots on the black background. And I could see it warping around the base of the, of the wine glass. And I kind of realized I need a warped piece of glass, a warped fat thing. <laughs> and I can move it over a dotted thing <laughs> and it would show the, the warping. Now, let's be honest, it's not warping light to a, it's not completely doing what the theory is meant to do. But you know what? The learner now gets it because they can sort of see it happening. Our job is to sit around and play with the concept and throw ideas on a whiteboard and pull away the ones we hate until it comes up with something kind of cool. Then we take it out to a class and the class either loves it or they hate it. And the teachers are very clear about telling you whether it was any good or not. Um, and so they should be. They've been teaching for years as well. Um, and then we refine it. The ones I like are the ones that we've sort of, um, we've tried to replicate a really cool experiment ourselves. I mean, not, currently the one that's crossing my mind right now is I do love the Rubens tubes we built. 
So like an over 100-year-old demonstration, but it's basically a metal tube with a whole bunch of holes across the top of it. And if you pump gas down, like propane down one end, and you have a speaker on the other end, and you light the gas, you will then get waves of fire, depending on which frequency you're playing down. Blows kids' minds that you start messing around with the, um, you, you know, show all sorts of things with waves with that. That's kind of fun, but it, sometimes there's the really simple experiments. I mean, one that I actually uh, reference every now and then uh, is honestly just melting ice. This one's really cool because it's counterintuitive. Um, so imagine you've got um, two blocks of material. One is aluminium and one is plastic. And you put your hands on both sides, so one on aluminium, one on plastic. And you ask the kid, which one is colder? They go, oh, it's the aluminium. Okay, cool. So which they, I'm going to change my wording now. Which one feels colder? They say aluminium. Of course it does. It totally feels colder. Cool. So if I hold an ice cube up, both sides, same dimensions, same volume, everything, and I put both ice cubes on the material, one on aluminium, one on plastic, which will melt first? The one on the plastic or the one on the aluminium? They all point to plastic without fail. Even though they know full well that I'm, I'm going to mess with them a little bit, but for some reason they seem to still go, they're still pointing at plastic. But as soon as you put the ice cube on the, on the aluminium, it starts melting like real fast, which blows kids' minds because I love those counterintuitive things. So you think, hang on, the plastic feels warmer, so it should totally do it. And now they learn about heat conduction. It turns out metals will conduct heat really well, and aluminium is very good at it. And so they kind of realize that, hang on, what they observe in their everyday lives might actually be doing something completely different to what they actually think. And the, kid, the people's explanations, they make sense, right? They think the plastic feels hot, the aluminium feels cold, but unless they actually test their ideas, they've got, they're kind of living in sort of almost a dreamland. They don't really truly know what's really going on. I love those times. So as much as I said the Rubens tube's kind of cool, just th having a little bit of a think, I think I like that one more because it makes people think rather than just here's a cool trick, I want them to think more. Physics has been before, and I understand this, many cues, you guys just do the whiz-bang cool stuff and then you walk away. I get that. So does every other museum outreach place across the country and the world. Um, the problem is, though, is that you want to elucidate questions and find and dig deeper. You want them to go down the rabbit hole around any particular experiment. When they start to go on that chat with you, you know that you not only do you have them hooked, that you've got them thinking. And if you've got them thinking, now they're learning. Whether we like it or not, there sometimes needs to be a bit of showmanship or entertainment factor in a lesson. And it could be something, it could be, a pen and paper thing that we're doing. But where the boredom creeps in is if there's no reason as to why, or there's no story about why should I care about this particular concept. For me, with kids, do they want to learn? I think people want to learn if the person giving the learning, the, the, the lesson, are worth listening to. <laughs> and then that's the, that's, that's, that's the hook, isn't it? Because it must be really frustrating, because especially if you've got someone who really knows what they're talking about, um, but unless they can captivate the group of people in front of them, they're not going to listen. Being a science show presenter means balancing priorities of both entertaining and educating. I wanted to know how Ben can tell whether kids are learning or not, and how he makes sure that he's reaching the right audiences in the first place. I was surprised to learn that Ben has presented shows to some pretty diverse audiences and worked under some very interesting conditions. One of the issues that science communication has is the issue of preaching to the converted. I mean, the people who are going to turn up to a science in the pub, um, they're going to likely be people who are interested in science. Um, I'm interested about doing programs where people do not want to listen. So I've done programs in prisons, 
um, done it in hospitals, all sorts of places. Um, that's always interesting, almost science by stealth. I actually prefer juvenile justice programs to some of the places I've been to. When they come into um, the room, often you'll have, especially some of the ones I've been to, you might have um, eight of the people come in plus uh, three or four people standing right behind them. Those kids actually, that is their highlight of their day, week, month even. Um, I mean, they actually, um, juvenile justice centres actually have a lot of outreach come out into them you know, in all sorts of uh, key learning areas, music, maths, geography, whatever, arts, comedy. This is something they really like, especially if they get to do something. Some of these kids uh, have low literacy levels and other kids have high literacy le- levels. It's got, they've got a highly varied background and they're all shoved into one group and they're bored. And and part of the, part of the issue is that they were easily bored when they were prior to their offending and, you know, there's other things that have come up to get them into that position. But you have a chat with them and you find out that they really do want to engage, just no one engaged them before. The challenge is actually getting the stuff in the, the centre in the first place <laughs> because, yeah, there are certain things you can't bring in. I mean, it's not wise to bring in things that become battens, that become a stabby object, that become an incendiary object. You don't want to, <laughs> you don't want to bring that stuff in. Uh, I remember bringing liquid nitrogen into the maximum security thing and um, the guards understandably wanted to scan it. But the problem is the duo can only go on go sideways through the x-ray machine. And anyone who's handled liquid nitrogen knows that the cap does not seal. It's not meant to seal. <laughs> and I was like, dude, you have a choice. I can, I can get it scanned. Um, but you're going to cool your machine down to the point where I think it's going to break. Or you can just understand there's liquid nitrogen inside and that's it. I mean, you can peer inside with a torch if you want. <laughs> anyway, it was, it's interesting. So a lot of it comes down to prior um, communications back and forth. There's a lot of emailing, a lot of risk assessments. You think risk assessments are full on in a museum? Try a juvenile justice center. Um, but the, the reality is that I've done some stuff at those sites that traditional places won't let me do. And it's because that people understand risk. Manage risk, proper risk. I think risk is a thing that people um, shy away from a lot. They they shy on the, the side of caution to the point of where they miss out because of fear. In the past, physics education has excelled at creating hands-on, face-to-face experiences for their audiences. It wasn't a surprise to hear then that last year changed their business model quite a bit. With school closures and social distancing measures in place as a result of COVID, Physics education have had to shift their focus to online engagement. We were particularly lucky, I suppose. So we've been doing distance learning for uh, 10 years. So I'm sitting right now in our purpose-built video conference room that we built about three years ago. I already had a very good idea of how to do it. What we had to do then is work out how does our Melbourne team, um, how do we convert their garage into a decent room that won't have sound issues, will have decent lighting and cameras, etc. Uh, for me, it was a... Inflection point. <laughs> it was a change uh, for some of our teams. Some of them hadn't been doing as much distance learning. Uh, a lot of it had been done by me, uh, but so we got that out. But the training for us wasn't too hard. We were up and running. Within the week of lockdowns, we had 25 programs all ready to go. We did one-hour programs up to three-hour programs. Um, and the three-hour programs had breaks so the kids wouldn't just lose their mind. But we were that the following week after the initial lockdowns in Australia, we were already presenting bucket loads of programs because we were able to. Um, we also were lucky enough to work with um, Sydney Science Education and Refraction Media together with Inspiring Australia with a delivery for training another 200 organisations on how to do this as well. 
Um, and that was a national release program that went out and it helped a lot of people through feedback that I hear that they would try to work out, well, what camera do I buy? What microphone do I buy? How do I present this thing in this way? Um, so we did, it wasn't a generic program, but it was trying to cover most bases of what you need to know um, to get going well. Um, we're really proud and to be involved in that because it meant that we were able to share that out so that other organizations who are really cool organizations could present and not just present their stuff, frankly, retain their stuff because that was an interesting time for everyone. And I mean, everyone talks about the arts community, but the education outreach community was in the world of hurt because trying to get out to schools when they're locked down is almost impossible. And if they'd never done uh, digital outreach before, there was a quite a learning curve. So I'm going to say that we were lucky that we had already been doing this. I know that others, through no fault of their own, just had not been doing this because it wasn't on the radar. And having this shoved on you would have been very difficult. So we're really happy to support that. Having stepped up to the challenges of presenting materials online, I was interested to know what Ben makes of the shift to online learning overall. Are science communicators just making the best of a bad situation? Or has the shift to online learning actually enhanced some of the educational experiences that they can offer? Yeah, you know what? For me, there are certain lessons that work better on distances, not just because I'm a big flag waver for it. And let me be realistic for a moment. You know, if you imagine you're holding, I know, I'm going to hold up my coffee cup here. Now you can see my coffee cup on camera, but if you're in a hall and I'm trying to show the experiment, which is the coffee cup, and you're 40 meters back, you can barely see the coffee cup. Now, of course, in a stage, you could put a camera to it and then project it up behind you to show the big coffee cup in all its glorious detail. Now, what if it was an overhead view that you needed, though? Can't see it so well, right? Especially if it's a liquid doing a thing. You can't tip it on one side because it's going to pour out. So there are certain things that, actually do better in a distance learning environment because you can focus in really closely. Uh, you can mess with sound waves. I remember running a program into New York and it was on sound. And so there's a, there are virtual oscilloscopes where you can have a sound and you get to see the wave and you can teach about frequency and stuff. The kids blew their mind that they could make sounds to me, the microphones would pick it up, and then the oscilloscope would then respond. They'd see the frequency do the thing, but also they were seeing the delay, the jitter, uh, video speak. Um, you'd see the delay in trying to get it out, and they said, guess what? We can actually work out how far away you are based on this as well, because of how long it took to transmit the signal. Um, so... Yes, there are certain things which will never replace being truly face-to-face. Hands-on is very difficult when they don't have access to the resources. I mean, we designed our lessons so that someone could go to a local shop in Burke and still be able to follow along and do experiments with us. But it's not the same as having the real materials in front of them. And so that'll never be replaced. So some things, for sure, you need to be face-to-face. But there are occasional things that actually are better via um, video conference. They just are. I think, put physics to one side for a moment, I think every place will have better collaborative technologies and not just uh, web conferencing tech. A lot of the uh, cloud storage and way of managing projects, people have had have been forced to now actually manage projects digitally, um, whether we like it or not, which means uh, that's not going to go away. In terms of physics' point of view, we were already using a lot of that stuff. Uh, it was actually, again, we were lucky because we had a lot of that stuff in place it was no-brainer. Like the project management, all the all the background systems didn't have to change because we already had them. But in terms of just say the world goes back to, to normal, I actually know now that this has actually allowed people to see that this weird thing, this distance learning thing is not that bad and you can still do it. 
Um, now, of course, we're all got, everyone's got camera burnout. We're sick of looking at all camera lens. <laughs> um, and I think there'll be like this, this lull. This is my get. My, everyone's going to be over it for a moment. They're going to only want face to face. And I get that. But eventually, you've now got the entire world has been forced to use it. Now, for 10 years, we've been fighting, literally explaining how to do it. Like explaining why would, what, like people not even imagine there was even possible, even though we've been doing it for years. Um, now, People have seen that it's actually a thing, which means that in a year or two or three or whatever it takes, if someone doesn't quite have the budget for an outreach thing or they can't get the kids on a bus to go somewhere, they won't just truncate their kids learning because of budget. They go, you know what, we can probably access someone doing something for free or something at low cost uh, by web conference and the kids will still get their understanding. They'll still get the experience. And so I think that overall, it's actually going to be a good thing from a learning point of view, because it's going to be a tool that's now acceptable and easy to use. I mean, admittedly, I mean, eight, 10 years ago, anyone listening who was actually dealing with this stuff, the barrier to entry was much higher. I mean, 10 years ago, our first video conference system cost us $25,000, and it used to cost us a 1000 bucks a month just to pay for the internet. Now you can get a free license for a system that runs on your laptop with a camera that's embedded, whether you liked it or not, and in there, and, and it works. So, I mean, I honestly think that this is a this is a good thing. It's just um, once we get all over the shock, and there has been a genuine shock, um, people are going to use it. I mean, the, the word on the street when we've been speaking with schools by doing face-to-face is they're like, oh, we're not going back. We're, we'll be hybrid. There's hybrid things that we're going to use. We're not, we're not going to let go of some of the technologies that we've been using to keep our kids engaged remotely. We can use that between classes. We can use it as part of their project work. I genuinely think that in a couple of years, this was, was probably the game changer, which possibly was going to happen over a 10-year period. It's now just happened very quickly at us. Having grown from small beginnings of a single person driving around to science-themed birthday parties on the weekend, to an education company with a network of educators spanning four states and territories, I asked Ben what his plans are for the future of physics education. I would like to have our team in each city um, over time. And that's not an ego thing. That's more like it would be really cool to be able to reach uh, kids with the programs that we do uh, in a way that's not just virtual. Um, so that would be nice. But if that doesn't happen, I'm cool with that. So I, I'm not like driven by ambition or a massive ego. It's, for me, it's just a, hey, that would be really cool if we could do it. If we can't do it, no big deal. So um, I don't know. For now, I don't have major plans to do anything right now. But if someone said, hey, we've got whether it was a funding thing or a cool co collaborative, whatever it is, we'll go, great, cool, how's it going to work? We then pragmatically work out how it would work out in stages over the next year, two, three, five years, and then we deliver it. Um, that's the fun bit, is I don't mind working in a big question mark. i got no problem with that. To find out more about Physics Education, you can visit their website, physicseducation.com.au. Actually, maybe look at the episode notes for a link. Physics education isn't quite spelled how you might think it is. You can also listen to Ben chat with other science communicators on the Physics Education podcast. This podcast is recorded on Anaiwan country and has been brought to you by the University of New England. To find out more about the Boiler House Discovery Space, visit uneboilerhouse.org.au. Thanks for listening. We'll see you here next time on Curiosity Built the Boiler House. <laughs>